0: Good evening. It's a joy to be with you all. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in one of the chair pockets before you. And if you're using that Bible, you'll find that on page 1034. Whenever I come back to a second RP, I kind of feel like visiting my parents over the holidays. Your home. But it's not really your home, but it still kind of is your home. And that's how I feel this evening. So I'm very happy and joyful uh, to be with you all here tonight. Uh, With that, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Revelation chapter 12, we'll be looking at the first six verses. This is God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one whom is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to heaven and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What is a great privilege that on the first day of the year, we begin this new year, 2023, on the Lord's Day. We begin the new year being able to worship our King, worship our Savior, worship Jesus Christ. One of the things that we like to do in the new year is we like to look forward to the year that is in front of us, and we like to come up with different goals or uh, different things that we would like to accomplish Other times, we like to reflect on the year that has just passed, and we like to consider perhaps all the ways that the Lord has been at work in our lives. And sometimes we reflect on all the ways in which we see the world, God's creation, grown, and we see all the ways that we struggle. We see concerns before us, concerns facing uh, the political sphere, concerns facing economics, concerns in our own lives and in our own churches, And even as we face those concerns and we recognize the legitimacy of them, this text reminds us that Jesus is king and that he rules with a rod of iron. This text reminds us that Jesus is king and he rules with a rod of iron. Now we're going to see that as we look at the three characters in Revelation 12, And we'll also consider the cosmic battle that takes place between two of these characters. And we'll see the divine protection of God's people, again, reminding us that the Lord rules with a rod of iron. So, first, let us consider these three characters. And before we do that, it's good for us to kind of set the stage of what is happening here in Revelation chapter 12. We have one story with two signs and three characters. We have the characters of the woman, the dragon, and the serpent, or the child rather. And we see these two signs, the sign, the great sign of this pregnant woman and the sign of the great red dragon. And notice how those signs are described. The sign of the pregnant woman is described as a great sign, a marvelous sign, a magnificent sign. Whereas the sign of the dragon... A being that seems more powerful, more dominant, stronger, more terrifying, is described simply as a sign. So even in the way that John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes for us these characters, we see the preeminence of the woman over the dragon. And we see that these signs take place in heaven. These signs take place in heaven, and literally, literally in heaven, with God This is what the Holy Spirit has revealed to John. And yet we also see these pictures of reality, but not necessarily reality itself. And this is what the book of Revelation is. It is a picture of reality or a sign of reality, but not necessarily reality itself. And one of the ways that we can understand that is how often do we like to take pictures or videos of our vacations. And we like to post them on social media. And this is something that my wife enjoys doing. She did this on our last family vacation this past June, and she had this video made of different photos that we took and different videos that were um, done, and there was nice music that was played behind it, and you watch that video and you think, man, the Murrays must have had a great time. And we did. But what you don't see in that video is you don't see my crying children. You don't see the weariness and the boredom of travel, and you certainly don't see our car broken down in the middle of the Mojave Desert. But you see a picture of reality, not necessarily reality itself, and this is here what we see in Revelation 12. And we're introduced to these three characters, the pregnant woman, the great red dragon, and the child. Now let's consider each one of them in turn. First, this pregnant woman, and who is she? Well, many will like to look at this pregnant woman and would like to attribute her to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And while certainly this woman encapsulates Mary, the mother of Jesus, she is enfolded into this woman. She is not the woman. Mary is not the woman. Rather, we see the woman here in Revelation 12 represent all of God's people, both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Now, all throughout the scriptures of both the Old and New Testament, we see that the people of God are referred to as the woman of God, or referred to as a woman. And the most obvious place that we can think of is Ephesians 5, where the church is described as the bride of Christ. But also, as you go through the Old Testament passages, particularly in the prophets, we see in Hosea 2, Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 3, Isaiah 50, and so on, that God's people are referred to as a woman. Now, in the case of the prophets, we are referred to as the unfaithful spouse of Christ. But even as we look here in Revelation 12, we see that even in our unfaithfulness, Christ himself remains faithful to us, remains faithful to his woman. And notice how this woman is described. She is described as one who is clothed in the sun. Now, remember, this is a picture of reality, not reality itself. But being clothed in the sun is showing us and picturing for us the exalted and glorious state of this woman. Now our own Dr. Pruto in his commentary on Revelation connects this to Malachi 4.2 which talks about the sun representing the righteousness of Christ. So we see that this woman is clothed with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We also see her described as one who has the moon under her feet, indicating that she has a dominion all over creation, that God has given his woman dominion over his created order. And we see that she has a crown of 12 stars upon her head, ultimately showing that she will be victorious through this child that she is going to bear. And we are told that she is with child. We are told that she is Pregnant, And John, through the Holy Spirit, is reminding us that Jesus the Christ comes from the line of his woman, comes from the people of Israel. And Paul speaks of this very same thing in Romans chapter 9, verse 5, when he says to them, that is, to the Israelites, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So from the flesh... Of the Israelites, through their natural generation, comes the Messiah. So who is the woman? She is not an individual, but represents the corporate people of God. From whom comes the Christ? Who comes the Messiah? And That's the first character that we see in Revelation 12. But we're introduced to a second character, one who is much more intimidating than a pregnant woman. And this is the great red dragon. And identifying this great red dragon is much easier to do than identifying the woman because the text tells us who this dragon is. And we see in chapter 12, verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So this dragon is none other than the very, the very same serpent who slithered into the Garden of Eden and caused Adam and Eve, or tempted Adam and Eve uh, to sin. Now, this dragon is described as one who has seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems or seven crowns, and we can look at these things and, and we can talk about how perhaps maybe some of these horns and some of these heads represent different nations or different time periods, but the whole thrust of the description is to show us the full extent of the wickedness and of the evil of this great red dragon. And the crown, like the crown of the woman, shows some level of authority. But notice that this is not an acquired authority or an acquired power, but rather it is a tethered authority, a tethered power that the Lord allows this great red dragon to have. He's continued to be described as one who has a great tail, who is able to sweep one-third of the stars from the heavens. Now we can read this and some commentators will tell you that perhaps this is the demonic coup in heaven where the devil recruits these angels, these fallen angels, to rebel against God. And we see passages like Jude 6 which say, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling place. And so we can pick up on this and say, okay, perhaps here is this coup. Here is the devil leading the rebellion against God. Others might say that the devil here is not necessarily recruiting one-third of the angels for his rebellion, but rather, more likely, John is picking up on the themes in Daniel chapter 8. And in Daniel chapter 8, verse 24, we read this, his power, that is the great red dragon here, his power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men, the people who are the saints." Now, earlier in this chapter, Daniel chapter 8, the saints are described as stars who are in heaven. So, in this case, it might be that in sweeping one-third of the stars from heaven, we see the great deception of this serpent, of this great red dragon. Now, in either case, whichever interpretation you go with, what we see here is that the devil is literally hell-bent on destroying God and destroying his people. And ultimately, we see here in Revelation 12 that this great red dragon wants to destroy this child, the pregnant woman's child. And that leads us then to the third character here in the book of Revelation, this child. This is a male child, and this male child is Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. And he is identified in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So, after this woman gives birth to this pregnant child, the child is identified as Jesus, the one who has power, the one who brings salvation to sinners, and the one who establishes his kingdom. Furthermore, we see this child described in verse 5 as one who has power to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And as you perhaps know, that John is almost quoting verbatim Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is an explicit messianic psalm. And it's explicitly about Jesus Christ. And this very same psalm, Psalm 2, in Acts chapter 2, Peter uses it as he's preaching about the identification of who Jesus is. Jesus is king and he rules with a rod of iron. This child is the one who was born in the manger. The one who had a humble birth here is described as one who has the height of power. And we see in verse 4 that the dragon waits with an open mouth to devour the child of the woman. It's a very grotesque and explicit scene as this woman is in labor. There the dragon is waiting to consume this child as soon as he comes from the womb. And here we get a glimpse behind the curtain of the cosmic battle that takes place throughout all of history, throughout all of reality between the child and the dragon. So let us now consider secondly the cosmic battle that we see here in Revelation 12. This chapter focuses on the war that is waged between the devil and God and his people. And we're going to trace the story of how the dragon is seeking to sink its jowls into the woman and to her child. And we're first going to go then to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we'll read in verse 15 how God is, has come into the garden. He's seen Adam and Eve's sin. He's cursed the work of man. He's cursed the delivery or the pregnancy of the woman. And now he curses the serpent. And it's interesting to see that God curses the work of the man and of the woman without cursing them themselves. But actually here, curses the serpent. And we read in Genesis 3.15, God speaking to this serpent, the great red dragon. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice that all three characters in Revelation 12 are here in Genesis 3. We have the woman, Adam and Eve. We have the great red dragon, the serpent. And we have the child, the promised seed. Genesis 3, the conflict is announced and then revelation 12 the outcome is fulfilled but notice the two areas of hope that we see as god curses the serpent in genesis 3:15 the main one that we all think about of course is the crushing of the head of the serpent but the second promise is the promise that we have hope and our hope comes from the fact that yes we have that promise seed that is the primary promise But we also have hope and the promise that there will be conflict between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. Yes, the people of God, you will face conflict with the serpent, but conflict equals struggle. God does not let us succumb to the devil, but promises we will have conflict, promises we will have suffering, promises that we will have battle, and ultimately promises that we will have victory through this seed through this child. So let's then trace how the Lord accomplishes his victory through this cosmic battle between the child and between this dragon. And you remember as soon as Adam and Eve send and God leveled these curses, he clothes Adam and Eve with this slain animal and then he sends them out of the garden and he sends them east and immediately, Adam and Eve begin to obey the commands of the Lord to be fruitful and to multiply, and they have these two sons, Cain and Abel. Will the seed come through Cain and Abel. And you remember the story, that ultimately Cain murders his brother Abel out of jealousy. And we read that Adam and Eve had another son, a son named Seth, and it is through Seth that the promised Messiah continues, the labor pains of this child continue through the family of Seth. Yet only a few generations later, we see that the world is so corrupt and so wicked that the Lord promises to send us flood and to wipe out all of humanity except for Noah. And who does Noah come from but from Seth? Noah is a descendant of Seth. Then from Noah, the line continues. And then it continues through his son, Shem. And then after the flood, after the Lord has preserved this family, through Shem then comes Abraham. And Abraham, you remember, is given that great promise, the promise of this child, the promise of a land, the promise of blessing. But you remember that there are two great challenges from this promise. The first challenge is, Is that his wife Sarah was barren. She was not able to have children. And yet, the Lord, in his goodness and his providence, opens the womb of this woman who is well past the age of childbirth, and they birth this son, Isaac. And you remember the second challenge. After their son is born, the Lord commands Abraham to kill and sacrifice his son, Isaac. Would God's promises be fulfilled? Would this promised child, Isaac, be killed? And you remember the story, the agonizing, heart-wrenching story, as Abraham takes his young child, they go up to the mountain, this child carries the very sticks that were to serve as the pyre which he was to burn on. Abraham is about to slit the throat of his own son, and you remember the voice. The voice telling Abraham to stop. And who did that voice come from? But the angel of the Lord. And who is the angel of the Lord but the pre incarnate Christ? Here we see Jesus safeguarding his own birth. And we see the line continued. And we see Isaac then marries Rebekah. And Rebekah, like her mother-in-law, was barren. She was unable to uh, bring forth children, yet the Lord opens her womb. And from forth, you remember, she gives birth to Esau and to Jacob. And we read about the great struggle between these two children, between these two brothers. And we read about how Jacob steals the birthright of Esau and all the drama that in place, or ensues because of that. And you remember, later on in life, Jacob and his family run into Esau and his family. And Esau is known as a great man, a strong and powerful man. His family, his people are greater than Jacob. And Jacob fears for his life. He fears that Esau will kill him. But the Lord stays the hand of Esau. And the line continues. Even as the dragon is seeking to consume the child, the Lord preserves this pregnant woman. And we read about how Jacob then has 12 sons. And we read about the favoritism that he has with Joseph. And how ten of the other sons want to kill Joseph but ultimately send him to slavery. And what does the Lord use Joseph for? But to preserve Egypt, to preserve Jacob and his family, to preserve the surrounding nations from the famine. God's people will not be starved out. The Lord uses Joseph to preserve the line. And we read about Jacob's name being changed to Israel. We read about Israel and his sons moving to Egypt. And we read about another pharaoh rising in this first pharaoh's place. And this second pharaoh hates the people of God. And you remember what he tries to do. He's fearful, yes, that the people of Israel are a great nation that they are reproducing very quickly, and he fears a rebellion, he fears an uprising, he fears an army, and so he has all the male children killed. That's what he seeks to do. All the male children killed. Do you see the great red dragon working behind the scenes to try and consume this child, the child of the woman? But God's people are spared. God's people are preserved, and he uses Moses as an instrument of redemption to bring God's people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And we read about how God's people go then to conquer the promised land. And who was the leader of God's people then? Yes, it was Joshua. Yes, there are typological things that we can point Joshua and Jesus. But notice, before the eve of the conquering of Jericho, who does Joshua run into? but the angel of the Lord. It is the angel of the Lord, again, who secures the victory for his people. And we see this land conquered. We see the people of Israel possess this promised land, and then we see a monarch rise from them. Yes, Saul, but then primarily David and his family. And we read about the great promise that God gives to David in 2 Samuel 7, promising that from the line of David will be always one who rules and reigns on the throne of Israel. And things went pretty well for David. Things went pretty well. For his son Solomon. But the time you get to the grandchild of David, we see the nation split. We see a great civil war rise up, and we see over and over again how the devil seeks to stamp out the child of the woman. And we almost see the people of David annihilated. And you remember that the God's people were exiled. And there are many things that we could talk about there, but only one will suffice for now. You remember Esther, how the Lord used Esther and Mordecai to preserve his people from wholesale slaughter from the wicked Mordecai. Now let us move into the scene of Bethlehem. Let us move into the scene of Bethlehem. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 2 where we read about that scene. God has preserved his woman, has preserved this pregnant lady, and now the lady is about to give birth. Listen to God's word from Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. this whole time. Yet, even through his offensive attacks on the woman of God, the Lord still advances. And we see here in Luke 2 what we culturally look at as a peaceful and idyllic scene. But no, this is a scene of war. Notice how Caesar has called all of his people who were under him to register themselves. We see Caesar demonstrating his dominion and his power over the people of God. But we also see in verse 4, Joseph. And who is Joseph related to but to King David? We have two political earthly powers, one in strength and one in weakness, but behind the scenes we have the battle of the dragon and of the child. And we see in verse 7 how the text tells us that there's no room for them in the end. Now, there are a whole host of words in the Greek language that can refer to ends. You can think of the uh, Samaritan, the good Samaritan, as he takes this beaten man to an inn that is an inn. But here, we are not talking about a holiday inn. We're not talking about a super eight. In here is actually, a better translation of it would be a guest house. So we see Joseph and his betrothed, not his wife, his pregnant betrothed going house to house, seeking a room to stay with their family, but because of the great scandal that has taken place, we see no one is willing to give them a room. Either Mary is a harlot or Joseph and Mary are fornicators. Either way, nobody wants to have anything to do with them. And again, you can see the dragon behind the scenes here. But you continue to read And we see in verse 8, we won't spend time reading it, but we see in verse 8 the host of angels appearing to the shepherds. Appearing to these men, the Lord uses shepherds to preserve his people. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. And here the Lord is using these shepherds to be people who are first witnessing the birth of this promised child. And we see in verse 14 where the angels say, Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we have a sign of peace for those who this child is going to redeem. But this is a battle cry against the dragon and against the demonic forces that are behind the scenes here. So we move then from the scene in Bethlehem to the scene of the cross. You remember as Jesus was born... The dragon's mouth was not closed. It remained open, seeking to devour this child. And we, all we have to do is think about the wise men. Remember, they're coming from the east. And don't miss the significance of that direction. Where did God send Adam and Eve out of his presence? East. And as Cain murdered his brother, and God sent Cain further away from his presence, where did he go but east? And yet here we see with the coming child, Jesus Christ, he is coming to redeem his people. And he's drawing them back into his presence, these men coming from the east. And you remember the scene with Herod, where Herod lies to them and says he wants to know where this child is. But behind the scenes, we know he wants to murder this baby, perhaps this toddler. And the Lord reveals to the wise men what his schemes are, and so they go a different route. And so what does Herod do but the same thing that Pharaoh does and tries to have these male children who are under two years old, murdered. And so we see Jesus fleeing east, or rather fleeing to Egypt. Joseph bringing Mary and his child to Egypt. And then we see Jesus coming out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Notice the parallels of Old Testament Israel with our Savior. And we see Jesus grow. We see him grow in his knowledge and his understanding of God. And we see Jesus baptized in Luke chapter 3. And then after his baptism, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus, sends Jesus out into the wilderness. And who does he encounter there but the great red dragon? Again, another battle scene. And you can connect this. Luke does it for us. Before Jesus is sent out into the wilderness, Luke gives us a genealogy, tracing Jesus all the way back to Adam. And what we're seeing is that Jesus is the second Adam, the greater Adam, the one who fulfills what Adam failed to do. And we see both Adam and Eve facing the sins of power, pleasure, and pride as they're offered that fruit. And we see Jesus facing power, pleasure, pride as he faces the temptation of the devil. But Jesus is victorious over the devil. But in the ministry of Jesus, we ultimately see where the jowls of the dragon sink their teeth into the heel of this child. And we see it on the cross. We see it on the cross. The devil has thought or thinks that he is one as Jesus willingly takes on the initiative himself, gives of his own life, and gives his, gives his own spirit up on the cross when he says it is finished. The devil thinks that he is one. But in striking the heel of this promised child, he's exposed his head, and Jesus Christ stomps on that head, crushing the serpent, demonstrating his victory, ruling with a rod of iron. The devil, this great red dragon, has failed in consuming this child. The cosmic battle has been decided. Jesus is victorious. What we see in Revelation 12... That the devil fails, the dragon fails. So now he shifts his attention on from the child now to the woman. And we see the divine protection that God has on you, his people. Look at verse six. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for one thousand two hundred and sixty days. Do you notice again the parallels between Israel and the wilderness? waiting to enter the promised land, and now we, the church, the woman of God, are in the wilderness, waiting our promised land, waiting the new heavens and the new earth, something that the promised land always pointed to. We are waiting for Christ's return. And as we wait, we are nourished by God for 1,260 days. Now remember, the book of Revelation is a picture of reality, not necessarily reality itself. And so if you were to tally up this number, 1,260 days, you would get three and a half years, or as the scriptures like to say, time, times, and half a time. And there are numerous interpretations of this, but really what we're seeing is we're seeing that this is the time frame between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ as we, the church, wait for Jesus' return. And during that time, we are not abandoned to face this red dragon alone. We are nourished by God. That is, we are provided for by the Lord. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. And we see here, not in verse 6, but in verse 14 of this same chapter, what the devil is doing. Where the text tells us, But the woman was given two wings by the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. And then before that, in verse 13, we see that the dragon shifts his attention to The woman, the dragon, has failed to devour the child, so he turns to us. He has failed to conquer Jesus, so he turns and he brings his attention to the persecution of the church of Jesus Christ. But even as we are waiting in this symbolic period of 1,260 days, the Lord does not leave us. And we could go through the book of Revelation and we could see that. But for time's sake, I just want to point your attention to Matthew 16, verse 18. A familiar text to all of us where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is expanding his kingdom. And notice, notice these gates. Gates are not an offensive tool. Gates are a defensive measure. And here we have Jesus saying that the gates of hell will be kicked off of its hinges by his church, by his people. The church of Jesus Christ, through the power of Jesus Christ, advances because of Jesus Christ. So what? What's the application? What's our theological whoop de doo of this passage? The application comes again from verse 5 that Jesus rules with a rod of iron. Jesus is king. Now we just participated as as a culture celebrating the incarnation and the birth of Jesus last week. And it's good for us to give gifts to one another. It's fun to decorate our homes with the tree and with the lights and with other things that are associated with Christmas. But the story of Jesus' birth is so much more than that. And there's a carol, it's one of my favorites, Away in a Manger. And it has a line in that carol where it says, Jesus, no crying he makes. Perhaps you know it. But it's not exactly right. Remember, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Fully God, fully man. And Jesus, the baby Jesus, acted like a man. So when baby Jesus was Tired, perhaps he cried. When baby Jesus was hungry, perhaps he cried. When baby Jesus had a dirty diaper, perhaps he cried. Again, showing that he identifies with his creation, with his people. The story of Jesus' birth is the story of him conquering the dragon and redeeming his people. Jesus is your king. Now, either he is your redeemer king, Or as verse 5 says, your conquering king. And think about the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Where we read about the humiliation of Christ. And then we read about the exaltation of Christ. And we read those great words that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And we have the opportunity to do that either as his redeemed people or his conquered enemy. One way or another... We will all make that confession. Whether it's the confession, Jesus, you are Lord, with thankfulness and with gratitude, or with Jesus, the one who rules with a rod of iron, ripping that confession out of your throat. Jesus is king. Jesus rules with a rod of iron. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that you have given to us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you that you are victorious over the great red dragon. We thank you that you are a God who nourishes us as we anticipate your return. Lord, we do pray that you would come quickly. Amen.